Hello and welcome to the Blair Upper Cervical Podcast, a show where we interview top Blair Upper Cervical chiropractors to glean their insights, tips, and passion. In each episode, your hosts, Dr. Kevin Pekka and Dr. John Stenberg, bring something unique and inspiring to help you grow and succeed. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the Blair Technique Podcast. This is a bonus episode, I'm calling him, and a very special guest, Dr. Jonathan Chung. Uh, he's a Nuka doc. He's one of our colleagues in the upper cervical world uh, from a different technical perspective, but we're going to talk about some uh, super interesting concepts, in my opinion. I think the modern day upper cervical chiropractor should be well-versed in the science, philosophy, and art of chiropractic. I think we have a unique opportunity to be able to affect all of those things uh, in a practical way for patients. And so I'm excited to talk with Dr. Chung about some uh, neurology, uh, specifically related to the training he's done through the Carrick Institute for Functional Neurology. But before we jump into some of these concepts, uh, Dr. Chung graduated from Life University, my alma mater in 2010, worked as an associate for a couple of years, as, as is the traditional course for a lot of folks, and then opened his practice, Keystone Chiropractic in Wellington, Florida in 2013. Uh, he started getting involved with the Neuro Diplomate Program and, and some of those uh, communities in around 2016 and has continued studying. He's got a really interesting course that's being developed through the Carrick Institute that's merging a lot of the upper cervical and uh, functional neurology principles that I'm excited to talk about too. So Dr. Chung, for our Blair family, the folks that may know you may not, give us a, a little rundown of your background in upper cervical care, and then we can we can dive into some of the content here. Thanks, John. So I am a Nuka doctor by training. So when I went to chiropractic school, um, right around the last quarter or so, I decided to immerse myself in upper cervical and the technique I ended up going with was Nuka. Um, I was really curious about upper cervical, even throughout my chiropractic education, starting with Toggle. Um, but I never really bought in because I was introduced to chiropractic through a Gonstead style chiropractor. And, you know, I really liked that style of adjusting during that time. Um, but there was a point where I was in clinic and I just got tired of trying to side posture someone. And I really wanted to see like, is what upper cervical says true, where if you align the upper neck, can you get downstream effects throughout the entire spine? And I ended up shadowing and interning with Brian Salmonen, who's a Nuka doctor just outside Atlanta. And one of the first things he wanted me to do was his research project where he was taking full spine x-rays on all of his patients. And he said, look at all these full spine x-rays and see which ones have scoliosis and see how many of them got better from scoliosis using, you know, just Nuka. Like, oh, that's a, that's a cool project. So I went through like, gosh, it must've been 300 sets of full spine x-rays. And we measured out that an average case got about a five or six degree improvement in the scoliotic curve just from getting their uh, atlas corrected. And a lot of these changes happen in adults, which, you know, if you know anything about scoliosis, like scoliosis isn't really supposed to change once you know, you get past puberty and you're into adulthood, but we would see like kids in one case study we published where they got a 10 degree improvement in scoliosis just from correcting the atlas. And that's when I was like, okay, so, you know, this upper cervical thing is real. Like if you just get the atlas right, you can make some really significant downstream changes in the entire spine. And on top of that, we got to see really cool neurological cases too. So we, I would see patients who walked in with a tremor in their right hand and they will walk out where the tremor is gone. I would see patients with multiple sclerosis, get rid of their canes and walkers. 
And it was just this incredible experience where you're just like, all right, this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I don't want a practice with just a whole bunch of back pain patients. Like, I want to change the direction of someone's life who thinks that their condition is not going to get any better. And that's where upper cervical kind of turned me on to it. And I just ended up immersing myself into the exploration of why upper cervical has these really life-changing dramatic effects on people. That's powerful, man. And I think uh, as a student, it's easy to say all those guys, those upper cervical guys are kind of embellishing They're old school. That's not really what's going on day to day, but it's true. And we all see it in our clinics. And I think as a student, we're torn, you know, and I had a similar experience starting with the kind of the Gonstead methodology, which I appreciated the, you know, the objective indicators of subluxation. But one thing uh, I remember going through school just for the students is every time we'd run into a problem, you know, whatever case management type of conversation was going on, they'd always say, go back and clear the upper cervical spine. And it got me thinking, like, if this is what we do for the folks that are in really bad shape and the, the complex situations, this should be the best for everybody, right? And that's a great place to start for, for all of our patients. And then learning some of the de- details about, you know, the mechanics and the neurology of the upper cervical spine, I just remember thinking, like, this is, a, this is something different, you know, altogether. I always knew the guys on, on campus that were in upper cervical, they took it very serious, you know, they're very outcomes oriented, they're very dedicated to developing their technical skills. And uh, I always, I always admired that. And so it's, it's fun to be part of that uh, cohort of, of folks that are out there in the real world doing it. Cause as you know, you know, we see these folks on a day-to-day basis that have tried everything. They've been everywhere. Uh, they've had folks tell them they could help them in the past and it wasn't delivered on. So it gives us a, I always tell patients, we're just looking for problems that are hidden in plain sight. If you know what to look for and you know how to correct it. And so uh, it's, it's exciting. So for students and young docs listening, um, that have a similar background, you know, stay the course, develop your technical proficiency and mastery because it, it is worth it. Um, so one of the things that chiropractic historically has focused on, or at least espoused is this uh, supremacy of the nervous system and the health of the, of the human organism, right. And it's direction of function in the body. Now with that and philosophy and some of these other things, we've got a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of bumper sticker quotes and a lot of different things that kind of float around out there and things that we say and things that we talk about. Um, I want to address maybe in your mind, since you've got some extensive uh, neurology training, what are the top, you know, let's say one to three misconceptions related to neurology that you kind of hear perpetuated amongst the upper cervical communities? And how can we all kind of do a better job of leveling up our understanding when we're talking about the nervous system? So I think a lot of it comes down to a communication issue more than anything else, because the way that we communicate isn't always a reflection of what we were learned and taught in school, because I know a lot of upper cervical chiropractors that are quite competent in what's going on in contemporary neurology, but um, we perpetuate some mythology that ends up um, creating a little bit of harm, not only when it comes to patient communication of what's going on with upper cervical care, but also it creates a little bit of harm in the fact that some patients are also creating these nocebos from the ideas that we're passing on to some of these patients. And probably the biggest one that um, we kind of grew up in was the idea that, you know, there was an idea that upper cervical chiropractors are brainstem doctors, which is definitely true because upper cervical chiropractic has this tremendous influence on brainstem neurology. But when we talk about it in terms of the atlas and uh, occiput actually physically compressing the brainstem. That is both really alarm-based terminology, and it's also not 
really true unless you have these patients that have these really big Chiari's. So when people are talking about like physical brainstem compression, and I had this experience with a patient who ended up seeing a neurologist and they were talking about how a chiropractor said they had brainstem compression and the neurologist basically, you know, pulled up an MRI and showed them where their brainstem is located and where their atlas is located. And it's a good inch and a half away from each other. And that ended up losing the chiropractor a lot of credibility because in just one simple image, that mythology was gone. Mm-hmm. And it really hurt that chiropractor's reputation, but it also hurt the reputation for all chiropractors because that person just lost trust in chiropractic because of that element. And some people do believe that brainstem compression is the mechanism for what happens from an upper cervical neurology perspective. And maybe that's the case in some very rare cases, but overall, like we are not correcting atlases on the vast majority of our patients because the brain stem is being compressed physically by a bony structure. So that's probably the biggest one that I think um, probably creates a lot of harm, not just from a patient, patient education standpoint, but we'll also have patients that um, phys- really do believe that their brain stem is being compressed and that creates this sense of alarm about their condition as well. And it, is going to hurt their ability to fully embrace the idea that their body is self-healing mm. and self-recuperating when they feel like their neck is in this constant danger of a life-threatening stimulus. We mm. can have a life-changing impact on someone through the neurology of upper cervical chiropractic without sending our patients into this hypersympathetic activation. And we see, like, if you see a patient that is like obsessive about their neck alignment, those are also tend to be patients that tend to be limited in how much they are going to improve with care because they're just chronically always thinking about this worst case scenario event. Hmm. Interesting. And you mentioned nocebos there. So would you uh, just define that real quick for folks that may have heard that term or aren't familiar with its definition? Sure. So most of us have an understanding of the placebo effect is where if you believe in an inert substance is going to heal you, that you're going to get better. And nocebo is actually flips the script on that, where if you believe something that is, you know, relatively inert is going to create you harm, then you are going to experience the harms of that, even though there's nothing active about that um, substance that is going to do that. And like, for example, everyone believes that they have gluten intolerance or gluten sensitivity. So, you know, you have a little bit of gluten, you might not have any physical biomarkers for gluten sensitivity, but then you have a headache after you've had something that you didn't think had gluten, but you just start to believe in that because, you know, the power of belief is so overwhelming that it overwhelms your sense of brain, your brain sense of normalcy. So that's where nocebo comes in. And nocebos can not only affect us from something like MSG and gluten beliefs, which there are some people that do have these things, right? But probably not at the rate that everybody thinks that they do, but also comes into play where, of someone doesn't believe that they're going to get better because they have a herniated disc at C5 or C6. Right. If they believe that that C5, C6 disc herniation is the cause of their pain, then no matter what we do until you break that belief, they believe that that C5, C6 disc herniation is incurable unless someone cuts it out surgically and they, that those self-limiting beliefs is going to prevent them from getting better. Yeah. And so we, we want to be mindful of not reinforcing that effect 
with patients and in a chiropractic context, that could be things like the brainstem pressure you're talking about, overemphasizing facet joint degeneration or some type of disc degeneration on an x-ray and things like that. So, okay. Any other uh, major misconceptions, you know, from an upper cervical point of view related to neurology? So from a practicing standpoint, um, you know, the idea of neurology and upper cervical chiropractic is kind of butt heads a little bit because neurologists see themselves as becoming like this evolution of chiropractic. And they feel like, because they're very contemporary that they feel like everything else that's being left behind is dogma, which is not necessarily true. Like we've seen the work of people like Scott Rosa has done really, really important work in expanding the idea of what upper cervical chiropractic is really doing. And on the flip side, a lot of upper cervical chiropractors think that neurology is just about spinning people in chairs and using that as a way to get patients better when it's not necessarily about the treatment. So just in, as an upper cervical chiropractic, it's not the treatment that we care about. It's this idea that we can neurologically enhance a person's way of being just from getting their atlas right. And it's the same thing in chiropractic neurology. It's not about treatment or the therapy. It's using these concepts about what the brain is doing and using what we know from contemporary research about how the brain works in order to gain access to almost have a conversation with the nervous system to figure out what the nervous system is looking for in order to try to restore homeostasis, normal function. Mm. Awesome. And now this is sort of uh, something in, in the Blair community that, you know, we talk about related to holding adjustments and things like that. What's the NUCA point of view on that? Do you guys uh, really emphasize the, the goal or the outcome of holding your adjustments over long periods of times? And, and from a neurological point of view, how do you see that? So holding an adjustment is pretty, it is definitely a goal within um, NUCA and the orthogonal world. So just like in most upper cervical chiropractic spaces, like how long our patients are holding is like a merit badge for when we talk to each other about in seminars, right? right? So like, you know, what's your average holding time? It's, you know, two to three months or it's a year or two years or something like that. So it's like, it's like, it's a, it's a measuring competition to see who's better at what they're doing. So like, that's, that's prevalent in NUCA as well. Um, from a holding standpoint, that's where my ideas of neurology are more in line with upper cervical world, because um, from a neurology world, um, it's more so about doing as much as you can to enhance plasticity. Mm. And in my w- worldview with upper cervical chiropractic, um, the biomechanics of what we're doing can enhance plasticity, not from the repetition of adjustments, but from getting such good precision and restoring normalcy that the reestablishing normalcy is what's driving the plasticity for holding an adjustment in itself. So it's not necessarily about adjusting someone over and over again, which might be the case in something like a CBP type of an approach where plasticity is happening from how many times you're adjusting the person. And um, that's also prevalent in like um, Heidi Havick's research as well, where it's just like how many times you're adjusting the person is what's creating plasticity. For the upper cervical world, our goal is to enhance the biomechanical alignment of the atlas and axis to the point where it's not slipping out again. And if it's not slipping out again, then you're creating plasticity just from establishing that normal biomechanical alignment in itself. Yeah. I I love that you made the distinction of biomechanical alignment, uh, because I think that's another sort of misconception that it pops out and we shove it back in and it pops out and it shoves back in. And, uh, you know, in, 
simple terminology that that makes it really easy to kind of converse with patients quickly about the fact that what well, you're out, we need to adjust you that type of thing. But, you know, I've preferred the out of adjustment terminology rather than out of alignment, uh, because it's not so much that, you know, even in the, the, the lower spine, you're not having individual segments that are disarticulated and we need to rearticulate them. And so uh, that's, it's a great, uh, it's a great distinction to make. And I think we should all maybe think about the way we're communicating that with patients and, and the reality of the physiology behind not just the, the mechanisms of misalignment, but also the, you know, mechanisms of correction. So do you want to talk a little bit about, about that topic? Maybe some of the neurophysiological mechanisms regarding the upper cervical spine that it's really, really key for upper cervical docs to master, or at least own and internalize. I think my biggest awakening moment was when I took um, the vestibular rehabilitation modules through the Carrick Institute. It was taught by a uh, chiro neuro named David Traster is just a super brilliant dude. And when we were breaking down the neurology of the vestibular system and we were just drawing out pathways and we saw how influential the cervical spine, especially C1 to C3 is on those vestibular pathways, then you start to see not the upper cervical spine as its individual neurological input into the brain, but you see it as this big picture, whole interconnected web where the visual system, the cervical spine, proprioceptive system, and the vestibular system are all working together to give us a place where our brain knows where our head is in space. And the idea that your brain has to know where it is in space in order to make coordinated motor responses and coordinated motor movements and coordinated autonomic responses is such a fundamental thing to what we do as upper cervical chiropractors, because if your brain doesn't have a good awareness of where it is in space, if it's feeling dizzy, if it's feeling foggy, then that is going to lead to issues where you can't think right, or you've had this feeling that, you know, I don't feel like my head is sitting in the right position. I always feel like I'm, my head is up in the clouds. It feels like it's in space. Then you're going to have autonomic consequences because your brain no longer feels safe because a fundamental part of safety is I know where my body is at all times. And if you don't know where your brain is or your, your head is at all times, then you're going to have all of these aberrant motor responses where you start to have these head tilts. You're going to have these postural misalignment issues, issues that we see um, and we, you know, point the posters on, and then you're going to have these autonomic issues where your heart rate can't keep up with, you know, moving up and down, you have exercise intolerance, and that's going to manifest itself as these different autonomic disorders. So the idea that the neck and the proprioceptors from the neck, especially from those suboccipital muscles plays such a key role into the integration of the lower brainstem where you have your vestibular nuclei and the vestibular nucleus is this place where all the sensory information is come together and says, where is my body in space? Where is my head in space? Once I know where my body and head is in space, my eyes can move better. Where, when I know where I am in space, my neck can move better. And most importantly, I can have this sense of balance and I feel right in the world. And that's um, one of the big fundamentals that uh, I took away from it is what I teach to other chiropractors. And, you know, you try to find the easy ways to teach your patients on what the meaning of all of this is. Yeah, let's talk about that, because uh, I know, you know, that's kind of a big, a big portion of I don't want to say distinguishing yourself from other chiropractors, but just giving the patient the sense of understanding. I think it's important that folks understand what their problems are. So many of them have had healthcare experiences where, they had testing performed. No one explained why 
what they found, what it means, you know, what that has to do with their long-term health trajectory. So now you're, you're bringing folks in, you know, you're taking your nuca films, you're doing your process of, of working a patient up. Uh, what does that entail? And how are you describing what you're seeing to patients and uh, sort of establishing expectations for outcomes? Sure thing. So in my practice, since we shifted to more of a brain-based model of care, everything that we do from the communication standpoint is we're looking at your neck because the neck has such an important relationship to that lower part of the brain called the brainstem. And the brainstem is really important for us because the brainstem is what coordinates your heart rate. It's what coordinates your blood pressure, coordinates your breathing and respiration. But there's also nerves that come out called your vagus nerve that goes into your gut and it controls your gut regulation. There's also areas of your brainstem that also relate to your posture. And that's why you're having some of these tilted posture and why you feel like you're not standing up straight. So what we are going to be looking for when we assess a patient is we're going to be looking for structural abnormalities with their hips and shoulders, because that tells us that your brainstem isn't controlling the muscles of your back properly. We're also going to be looking at things like your balance. So we'll do dynamic posturography with people. We'll put someone on top of a force plate and we say, stand as still as you possibly can. And we're actually going to measure how many millimeters and centimeters that you're actually moving when you think that you're standing still. Mm. We're actually going to challenge that patient and say, all right, do this with your eyes closed do it while you're standing on the foam pad, do it while standing on the foam pad while your head is turned. And each of those conditions shouldn't really change your sway patterns that much. But if it does, then it starts to open up a window to saying, oh, your neck might be influencing this or your vision might be influencing this. So that's what we do on a dynamic posturography assessment. Then we will come down and we'll take the x-rays. And for me, we've shifted our outlook on x-rays. So when I talk to a patient about their x-rays, I'm not necessarily telling them about how devastating you know, their spinal degeneration is. My goal with the x-rays now is, all right, we know that your upper cervical spine is causing some neurological dysfunction in you. My goal with the x-rays is not to tell you what type of pathology you have in there, unless there is some signs of actual pathology there. But my goal is I'm going to use this information from your x-rays so I could best design a biomechanical correction into what's going on in your neck. Because if I restored normal biomechanics to your neck, then you're going to have better brain function. And then from better brain function, you're going to start to feel a lot better. And then we'll also do some eye movement and eye tracking assessments. So we'll put goggles on your eyes because your eyes are a easy window into your brain. And each time that you move your eyes in a different direction, it tells us a little bit about what's going on in your brain. And that way I can start to develop different exercises or therapies for you so that you could do them at home, or we'll do some of them in the office in order to maximize the performance of these areas of the brain that aren't working so hot. So everything goes back to what are we doing and what are we looking at that's going to target these areas of the brain that we suspect are not functioning well. And that way we can try to teach your brain how to perform better with it. Yeah, it makes a ton of sense. I think, you know, we, we have similar conversations with folks about musculoskeletal type of effects like ergonomics and, you know, corrective exercise and things like that. It seems like it's a similar principle just applied to neurological function uh, in tissues rather than, you know, just the simple musculoskeletal uh, range that we're familiar with working in all the time. Yeah, for sure. And it's a more interesting conversation for a lot of patients to have, um, especially within the upper cervical patient base, because, you know, a lot of people aren't coming to upper cervical chiropractors first for their back pain, right? 
Like yeah. we're getting weird stuff. We're getting people that have felt dizzy for 25 years. We're getting people with trigeminal neuralgia. We're getting people that have these weird pain syndromes or things that, you know, people don't really understand that well. And, you know, just having this different perspective and different way of educating people can help people that feel like they've been discarded by the medical community. They could say like, wow, this person understands you because he's seen other people that have been through this right. thing that I've been through. Right. So what's a, give us sort of a, a cross section of your patient population. Well, who are the types of cases that you're seeing a lot of? Um, the vast majority of my patients now are having either some type of autonomic disorder or vestibular disorder. So we're seeing a lot of patients with POTS, orthostatic hypotension, um, or they're having some uh, persistent dizziness issue. So, yeah. you know, what started out where I was forming a niche with a lot of traumatic brain injury and concussion patients has transformed because a lot of, you know, brain injury concussion patients, you know, they feel dizzy, they feel off balance. But as we had success with those patients, we started to see a lot more patients coming in with a lot of these vestibular type issues and a lot of patients that have vestibular symptomatology. So they say they feel dizzy might actually have autonomic issues. So, Mm. you know, that feeling of dizziness where they say they have vertigo, they might actually have something like orthostatic hypotension where they don't feel they don't actually have vertigo, but they don't know how to describe it. And if they don't know how to describe it, then it's up to us to kind of kind of guide them to tell them, you know, have them explain to us what they're feeling. That way we can make a better assessment of what's going on with them, what's causing them to feel so poorly. And it's important to take a proper case history with this type of thing too, because I know we've all had patients like this where they focus on the musculoskeletal complaints, you know, when they fill out an intake form, for example, and they think chiropractor treats neck and back pain. So here's the concerns that they want to know about relative to my health. And they may leave some of those other things out that, you know, they wouldn't even connect the dots with as it relates to what's possible as far as outcomes go. Uh, so, and, and I don't know how many times if you sit down for, you know, a, a very reasonable amount of time and do a proper history with folks, they'll report back that no one's ever talked to me about all this stuff and, and tied a knot through or tied a thread through some of these concerns in the way that you have. For sure. And especially like some of these patients where, you know, you take a dizzy patient, you unravel like, what's your dizziness and you start to say, Ooh, this person doesn't have vertigo. They probably have some type of autonomic disorder. And if you know that they have a suspicion for an autonomic disorder, then it opens up questions that help you build more rapport and says, all right, you know, you have these dizziness issues. Do you ever feel nauseated? Yeah. I feel nauseous all the time. Do you have any gut issues because gut dysautonomia can lead to things like gastroparesis? Yeah, I have some of these underlying gut issues. And now you have this mechanism for how upper cervical care through the brainstem is not only going to affect the dizziness issue, but there's a good propensity for it to affect some of these organic conditions, which we know upper cervical has helped in the past, but you're actually predicting to them what you're about to see and what you're about to unravel because you have this focus on the autonomic nervous system and not just you know, a narrow musculoskeletal complaint. That's awesome. Yeah. And I think for, for folks that are sitting across the table from you in that, that situation, that's, I think innately, they want to hear that, right. They want to know that there's, that there's a thing, you know, that there is something to it, that that it's not in their head. They're not just a basket case and that there are solutions available to them. Even if it's not a silver bullet or a cure, a lot of times you get windows into the nervous system. Like you're saying, you start to gain some momentum, you know, that, that feeds into progress and other treatments or other things that they're doing. And, uh, the convergence of progress is really encouraging to folks. And you kind of see them come out of their shell and become them, you know, which is always a really rewarding part of our job. I think when you see folks kind of become themselves again. 
Yeah, absolutely. And like you could have a direction to steer them to. So even if you don't want to practice functional neurology in your office, just by having a little bit of a baseline level of what um, different areas of the brain are responsible for and different neurological issues are responsible for, like you could send someone that has this autonomic nervous system disorder to someone, a cardiologist with some autonomic background. And, you know, obviously we don't want our patients to be on medications forever, but some of these patients, if they get a medication that helps to helps their fluid retention, then that's going to really enhance their quality of life until they go down the path of doing other things to actually solve the problem. Sure. So it's about finding good solutions for our patients to help them improve their quality of life. And, you know, I live a chiropractic lifestyle, right? So, you know, I eat organic, I exercise all the time, and I want to live my life in such a way that I don't have to rely on drugs. But I under also understand that a lot of people don't want to live like that. And you don't, it's not a desire or a goal to live like that. And our job is to just help people get to the next point in their uh, in their path of life in order to get to full expression of life and health. And if we're doing our job right, hopefully they want to end up living a life where like they're eating right and exercising and doing these things from a lifestyle standpoint. But sometimes people just need a mile marker to just check in and say, all right, I'm a little bit better. Maybe yeah. I could exercise a little bit now or do something on the next step. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. Just to know the progress is, is possible. Uh, it, it can be, I don't want to say motivating cause that's, you know, kind of a, kind of a cheesy word, but it, it can sort of propel them to the next step. Like you're saying. So how did you get interested in, in this sort of, you know, functional neurology path and describe maybe your, your initial experiences with that community and what your trainings involved. Cause I know that will lead into talking about the course that you've developed along with the Carrick Institute that's coming up here. So <clears throat> I got into neurology because while I was, um, you know, doing hardcore NUCA, um, I started to see a lot of concussion patients and I started to publish um, some of my outcomes with a couple of concussion patients that did really, really well with getting upper cervical. And this started to become like my niche in practice. And while it's become my niche, I wanted to make sure that I had a strong understanding of everything related to concussion. And at the same time, I also wanted to get an explanation for why some aspects of subluxation didn't get better. So for example, if we had those patients that their head tilt never goes away, even though you got a good adjustment on them, you clear their pattern, their posture looks better, but their head is still tilted way off to the side. And I was just like, huh, why does this happen? And I wanted to understand what was going on from a neurologic level to explain that, because maybe you could fix it if you have a better understanding of neurology. So I started to dive into the traumatic brain injury course through the Carrick Institute. Um, and then I ended up taking the vestibular rehabilitation course through the Carrick Institute. And the vestibular course just, you know, knocked my socks off and, and helped provide an explanation for so much of what I was seeing. And then I started to take up some of the other care courses, um, receptor-based essentials, and it eventually got to the point where um, I ended up getting my fellowship in the American Board of Brain Injury and Rehabilitation. Um, so I have a really strong understanding of concussion and a lot of the issues surrounding concussion. And, you know, that's one of the patient bases that I really enjoy working with most. And from there, I started to have a lot of upper cervical chiropractors ask me about, you know, a complex case that they're seeing. So can you tell me a little bit about this person that has XYZ going on? And we started to, you know, kind of work through some things to look for and giving them some tests to do to see what if they can flesh out what's going on with that patient. And 
um, there was enough people that were doing this and they were saying, do you have a course that could teach this? And I was like, no, not really, not yet. And then the Carrick Institute actually asked me, he's like, hey, can you develop a course for as like an intro to neurology for upper cervical chiropractors? And I was like, all right, yeah, we could do something like that. So now we had developed this weekend course for upper cervical chiropractors where the goal isn't necessarily to have them become a fully trained functional neurologist, but it's to know enough about the types of patients that we see all the time and to use really easy assessments on patients where you have an understanding of what's going on and you might be able to integrate some really easy things to either refer the patient to someone that can make them feel better, or you could give them some exercises that might be able to make them feel better rather, rather quickly. So we took this, so we want patients to be able to go to an upper cervical chiropractor and know that the upper cervical chiropractor is really good at what they do from an adjustment standpoint, but they're also really good at just assessing a patient and understanding what's going on with the patient and the whole patient picture, not just the subluxation aspect of the patient picture. Yeah. And, you know, that's what the course is going to be all about. Awesome. And uh, when and where is the course? And we'll make sure this is out in plenty of time for folks to register. So it's going to be in August and the course is going to be held live. So if you want to attend the course live, it's going to be in Cape Canaveral, but it's also going to be available for streaming. So if you can't travel to Florida for whatever reason, then you can actually stream the course live and you'll be able to get a lot of the stuff that we're doing because there'll be videos and case reviews and stuff like that. So that, you know, I want people to take the course who take the course to feel like they could go into the office the following week and they could start using some really simple assessments to gauge what's going on in the person's brain and to, you know, really easily start to provide some interventions that might be able to help facilitate your outcomes from an upper cervical chiropractor or from a uh, functional neurology standpoint. Because one of the things that was challenging for me is I did my best job getting that patient a really good adjustment and they're holding but they still felt like crap and they felt like they were stuck in a place where they weren't symptomatically getting better, even though we'd done everything that we could in order to make sure that their alignment was good. Now, this wasn't a rare, this wasn't a common thing, right? So it's not something that happens all the time because when people are holding, they're usually doing pretty well, but there is a small patient population, maybe 5% of these patients where they're holding their adjustment, but whatever's going on with them that is inhibiting their ability to live a full life is still inhibiting them and they're not progressing in a way that their life is getting better. So I just wanted to find ways where when they're holding their adjustments, what can we do to help facilitate greater change in the nervous system so that, you know, we always, we say that all processes take time. Well, my take is what if we could enhance and catalyze the process of time and make it go a little bit faster. And they're still doing the same things from a neurological standpoint to facilitate improvements in their, um, neurophysiological function. Yeah. And that's the same type of curiosity. And I guess you could say frustration that drove Dr. Blair to start playing with x-rays, right? So get better outcomes. Let's get better outcomes with these folks. And I'm sure everyone listening is thinking of a handful of cases where they're like, that's the person that he's talking about in my clinic. And I need to figure out how to, how to crack this case. So, okay. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure to, I'll include the link uh, to the course in the uh, show notes here and in the YouTube video for that. So I really encourage folks to get to the, to the live in person. Cause I imagine some of the hands-on aspects of those assessments would be really key uh, to develop that in real time. Uh, so let's uh, let's underscore that and make sure that folks do appreciate the fact that Dr. Chung is building bridges between communities here, not trying to create converts 
from upper cervical to functional neurology. Uh, but it is, you know, which I really respect is, is creating that, uh, that interplay and that collaboration between these two communities that I think have a lot to uh, support each other with. For sure. And one of the things that like, I really value about, you know, there's a lot of interdisciplinary stuff going on within the upper cervical world, which is really cool. And the upper cervical council has been doing a good job of driving that, but um, you know, the neurology world is starting to want to have that too, because, you know, previously like neurology and upper cervical chiropractors have butted heads about, you know, what the end goal is, but really the end goal is not to say whose technique is better. The end goal is how do we serve our patients better? Because that's the people that matter is the people that are receiving our care on the other end and everything else is just egos. So let's get rid of the egos about, you know, which technique or which methodology is better and let's just learn about how can we make the lives of people that are paying us good money and seeing us on a routine basis. How do we make their lives continue to get better? Um, if there's easy ways to be able to do that. Absolutely. All right. Awesome. Let's, uh, let's transition to some maybe chiropractic philosophy terminology. Just curious how this hits your ear and what's your take uh, based on what you know, you know, maybe you have some philosophy in your background, maybe more from a neurology perspective, but when you hear, the term interference related to subluxation. Uh, what, what comes to mind? What do you think about? Um, when I hear interference, I always think of it as an interference or an obstruction to normal bodily homeostasis. And from a chiropractic perspective, obviously subluxation is going to have that effect on people. And I don't, you know, I don't, I don't think most of our cases are going to be the bone on nerve leading to interference in that way but there's so many places within the neural axis where there can be interference there. So if someone has a stroke in, you know, one part of their cortex, there's going to be interference there because that some of those neural pathways that are there are no longer viable. So you have to find a way around mm-hmm. that. If someone has a subluxation, then they're going to create interference at the level of the brainstem because the brainstem can no longer tell where their head is in space. And they're going to create these maladapt- maladaptive adaptations that are going to perpetuate further breakdown of their own physiology. So interference from my perspective is always a break from homeostasis. And, you know, obviously from a philosophical world is talking about the mental impulse, but if we can't quantify the mental impulse with current tools that we have, then the next best thing that we have to do is we have to understand the neurology and see where interference is happening at the neurological level. Awesome. And then on the flip of that would be clear. Do you talk to patients? Do you tell them things like you're clear now, or we want to get you clear, clear, keep you clear? Or is that terminology that you don't use? Um, I use it on and off. I do refer to holding quite a bit. So patients do love when they're holding their adjustment. And when I explain the the fact that they're holding their adjustment, um, it comes to the idea where I have a strength training background. It's just like your body is actually getting stronger. It's able to maintain the changes, the positive changes that we're trying to create in it. And it's basically able to take those changes and start to build a stronger, healthier body from the inside out. So I always relate things into things that have applications into what they can relate to very easily. And when I talk about the strength of your alignment is getting better, you're holding, then that's kind of the direction that I've taken my terminology when it comes to um, that aspect of things. Beautiful. Now, as far as um, day-to-day checks, uh, what types of... um outcome assessments or, or subluxation indicators are you using to monitor progress with these things over time? When it comes to the actual alignment aspect, like my, my, the way that I check for alignment 
has not changed because Nuka, my protocols are the same when it comes to Nuka. So I'm doing supine leg check. I'm um, putting people in their postural check using hip calipers and things of that nature. Um, I'm looking at bilateral weight distribution. So stuff like that. So that part has remained consistent. Um, the things that have changed are how do I measure the patient's overall neurological integrity? So I'll measure things like pupillary responses. So there's an app called Reflex where you could actually measure how responsive the pupils are. Um, I will do posturography. So I'll measure their balance on firm surface foam and different head and neck positions. Obviously we post x-ray a lot in the NUCA world. So we use x-ray as one of our assessments for that. And things like HRV come into play too. But for those things, I don't make it about subluxation when it comes to that. Like subluxation will make those things improve, but these are things that tell me how is your overall neurological function doing? And if it's improving, then that's great. If it's not improving, then what can we do to help facilitate that change? So this is regardless of whether your adjustment is holding, it's it tells us, you know, do we need to put a little bit more focus on your vestibular system? Do we need to put a little bit more focus on your ocular motor system? Do we need to have you do some more autonomic type stuff and incorporate some breathing and, um, you know, exercise and stuff like that. So understood. they're just guideposts to say, how do yeah. we push you in the next direction? Yeah. Understood. You want to, you want to have a broad range of neurophysiological things to monitor so that you can track progress. And if there's a lagging system, then you want to have the opportunity to catch that and, and provide some stimulation to, to Im- ha- have that improve with everything else that you're measuring. Correct. So awesome. yeah, we'll have a patient that holds for like four or five, six months at a time. And they're coming from North Carolina to see me if they're still holding. I still want to help improve the fact that, you know, her balance isn't that good. So what are we going to do about that when she spends time here? All right. The vestibular system is not doing so hot. So we're going to make the focus of the next week, you know, getting that vestibular system up and going. Awesome. I'd like to wrap up here for the next couple of minutes. Um, if you had some words of advice, I got, I got three populations in mind for this and you might, it might be the same, could be a little bit different depending on who you're talking to. But if you were to give advice to, let's say students, you know, that are kind of transitioning like you were towards the end of school, getting interested in upper cervical, getting interested in some neurology and kind of thinking about next steps uh, as it relates to this type of career path. Now, what advice would you have for those folks uh, as far as, you know, how to think about next steps in the development of their career? So if you are a strong student and the school aspect of things doesn't come with that much difficulty for you, then I would spend as much time trying to just get a perspective of as many different chiropractic approaches as you can and become a master of one. So if one is speaking to you, like master that and, you know, use that the best as you can, because all these other technique perspectives have a little bit of intrinsic value to why they exist and having an understanding of that can give you a good input into, you know, how do you can make your level of care a little bit better. So I would definitely spend a lot of time in you know, clubs and just learning different perspectives. And one of the big things that used to go around in school was that, oh, once I get past boards and I don't need to learn, I don't need to know all these physical exam things anymore. But if you're really interested in neurology, the physical exam is really, really cool and really valuable in order to provide really good care for those patients. So one of the things that you know, we kind of took for granted is like, we learned these like finger to nose tests and we learned how to like test for dysdiadocokinesia and all those things like, oh, well, we're never going to see a patient with these cerebellar issues. But I was taking care of um, this, uh, it was a pretty famous athlete. And you think that an athlete would have like 
unbelievable cerebellar function because you can't be an elite athlete if your cerebellum is not doing so good. But when we did the assessments on them, um, we saw that they were having like a little bit of mild dystidocokinesia. Hmm. We saw that like their eyes closed and on a balance pad was a little bit, you know, swaying. And I was like, huh, this is like a world-class athlete and they're having some cerebellum issues. And then, you know, we adjusted them and some of the cerebellar issues got a little bit better, which is good. But then we started to do some um, eye movements with them to focus on that less cerebellum. And then after a couple of minutes of those eye movements, like all of a sudden, whatever the chief complaint was, was just like gone in that moment in time, just from, wow. you know, targeting that cerebellum. And I wouldn't have known that if I just like discounted the ideas like, oh, can you do this? Can you do, you know, turn your palm over as fast as you can? You see the stumbling hand motion. Yeah. Like a world, even a world-class athlete can have a little bit of, cerebellar dysregulation and you can fix it relatively easy. Yeah. And that rapid alternating movement, if you're a, if you're an athlete or even a high performer in life, I mean, that stuff comes in handy. You need, you need access to that function, right. To, to live your life optimally. Yeah. And if you don't have access to that function on one side, but you do have access to another, what's going to happen. You're going to bias everything that you do towards the side that is good. Right. And you're just like not use the other hand and that's going to create a weakness in your game too. Yeah. And, and at Life University, I know Dr. Sid Williams always talk about peak potential. And that was what, you know, one of those, one of those good uh, kind of buzzwords around, around that campus. But that's uh, what you're describing there is, is some untapped potential. And when you're a world-class athlete, every minute improvement counts. Um, and that's true for the lives of our patients too. Um, so that would be one, one population. The second would be, let's say the folks that have kind of got hit a sweet spot in practice, they kind of been cruising for a little while doing good upper cervical work. They're happy with their outcomes, but they're, I don't want to say getting a little bit bored, but they're trying to think about, you know, where, where can we step our game up a little bit? What would your advice be for those folks? So intellectual curiosity is the cornerstone for just, um, it's, if you look at high Maslow's hierarchy of needs, there's like that self-actualization idea, right? Anytime that you're in practice where you're just kind of bored, then all of a sudden the practice is just a financial instrument for you instead of something that you're deeply passionate about improving someone's life. And the type of doctor that walks into one is going to be a lot different than the type of doctor that walks into the other. So from, for me, like I'm going into neurology has like re-energized this idea of how do I continue to make my patient care better? And you always have to find something that is going to bring out that intellectual curiosity in you. And I know a lot of people um, in the upper cervical world have turned that into like, I'm really curious about cone beam CT. And that is awesome to see the growth of cone beam just in the past 10 years has been, you know, a little bit of a renaissance in the upper cervical world, which I think is a really, really great place for it to go. So finding these little things that make you intellectually curious about um, the type of care that you're providing I think is super valuable. So anytime that, you know, I have some downtime, like I'm usually reading a paper that I saw on Twitter that, you know, piqued my curiosity, or I'm kind of delving into like a patient case that has kind of given me a headache. So I start looking and looking at background information for what I could do to try to help that patient get better. So these little things kind of keep that, that fuel fired up for me. And that's one of the things that I would encourage people to do is just like, don't necessarily just take the same seminar that you're going to each year, just because you're just trying to stay active in the organization, like be a little bit curious to step into a field that, you know, you've never been to before. So 
I went to a conference just in February um, called the Society of Neurosports. And this has nothing to do with chiropractic. It's just a bunch of people talking about the neuroscience as applied to performance training and just being around like brilliant PhDs that are studying the effects of sleep on, you know, athletic performance and what they're doing to enhance sleep. Like there's just like golden nuggets to be abound if you are willing to step outside of the specific niche chiropractic circle that you're in and you're actually willing to step into another side interest that doesn't necessarily chiropractic and you can learn from that on top of you know being really good at your chiropractic outcomes otherwise you know people are just going to you know turn to day trading and trading crypto and you know being a stock stock trader and, and you know i've seen people that you know, they are doing this actively while they're in their office. And if someone is worried about their stock ticker while they're like, you know, good for them. Like I want them to be financially successful, but that's not the doctor I want to see. And that's not the doctor that I want to refer people to. Right. Yeah. And I think if you're the, if you're the patient in the waiting room, that's, that's not what you want to have going on on the other side of the door. When, you know, I always talk with my assistant about this, like no matter how many patients we see in a day, they saw one chiropractor, but they had one appointment with their doctor and they deserve the absolute best that we can give them, you know, during that time. So, um, yeah, stimulate that intellectual curiosity, no matter how you got to do it, shake things up a little bit. And I think it's interesting too, cause it'll cause you to, this is true in other areas of life, but it'll cause you to reevaluate the things that you think, you know, um, and, and sort of filter it through this new knowledge. And, uh, it, you know, brings up a lot of interesting, you know, questions that, you know, spark interesting conversations. So it's a good, it's a good endeavor and it's not something to be afraid of. It's, it's only going to improve your, your uh, ability to provide, you know, valuable care to your patients. So, and then for the third category, let's say the folks that are, you know, maybe listening to this, they could be Blair docs, they could be full spine docs that came across this on YouTube or something like that. And they're just totally unaware of what we're talking about, maybe a little bit overwhelmed, but interested. Um, what would you say as first steps for folks to kind of go down this path of exploring neurology a little bit and, and just getting, if you were to say a firm foundation in some of these concepts, uh, what advice would you have for those folks? So if this feels overwhelming, then that's actually kind of a good thing because people that feel that sense of overwhelm, they starting to develop an idea that, oh, there are holes in my game. Mm-hmm. So if you feel that sense of overwhelm, then like, instead of being afraid of it, like kind of start to dive into it a little bit. And it doesn't mean you have to like take the next seminar. It just means that like, all right, there's so many free resources on YouTube and Instagram, where if you just look up hashtag neuroscience on Instagram, you're going to get a wealth of information of infographics of videos that are explaining really interesting concepts in science. And some of them are really way better at breaking some of those concepts down than I am. And some people love the way I break things down, but other people like, I have no idea what John said because that was way over my head. So we live for better, for worse. We live in a world that is so inundated with information that you can get access to learning about anything that you want. And some people break it down really easily and might speak to you. And, you know, one of the cool things is like just, going back and retaking an anatomy class on YouTube where people are just drawing on whiteboards and telling you about neurological pathways. Yeah. I use that to study for my neuro boards. Like there's no shame in that. And it's really, it's a great time to be allowed to have those types of resources. And if you're ready to take the next step, then I'm always happy to talk to you about a case or to talk to you about, you know, what things to look for. Um, so, you know, I try to be accessible where people message me on Facebook or Instagram 
And, you know, I'm happy to break things down for them. And then if that stimulates you enough to want to go take the course that I'm teaching in August, then, you know, I'd love to see people there. And so we can, you know, get hands on and really go into the weeds of all of this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and just to plug, uh, Dr. Jeff Hanna, you know, fellow Blair chiropractor, put together a clinical neuroanatomy course that's available on the Blair Technique website. It's a series of modules with, um, you know, resources, slides, you know, handouts, there's like 88 pages of references at the end of it. It's, it's a great course. And he built it out of necessity because he couldn't participate in the diplomate program being in Brisbane, Australia. And so he kind of went on this process of self-study like Dr. Chung's talking about, put this together for you. So check that out. Um, it's awesome. And he does explain things in a very different way. So it'll hit your ear a little bit different than the way Dr. Chung would or Khan Academy on YouTube or whatever it is. So I hear it from a few different points of view. You revisit this stuff and it becomes more familiar with time. I mean, we've all had that experience when we first got introduced to chiropractic school, the first few quarters, you know, we're totally blown away with the volume of information to process. Then you get into your technique certifications and you feel the same way. I mean, there's levels to it, right? And as you proceed through those levels, um, you, you develop the, you develop the skill set and the pension for learning, which I think is, is, uh, one of the most valuable things about being human is the ability to continue to learn. For sure. And the one thing I would take away going back to that idea of feeling overwhelmed if someone's talking, like my goal has always been to never be the smartest person in the room. If I'm sitting in someone's class, if I feel like I'm the smartest person in the room, then there's almost no reason for me to be sitting in that classroom. So if you feel like that, then you have to start to change the types of rooms that you're in. It's not to say that, you know, people are dumb. It just means that you've hit your potential on what you are getting out of the current instruction that you're getting. And that construction can still be very valuable, but, you know, if you know what an ASRP is and an ASRP hasn't necessarily changed besides the muscle memory of performing the adjustment, then you have to figure out, all right, I know this person is an ASRP, but what else could be going on and what else is happening neurophysiologically that can help me take better care of this person. So one more advice to have people is if, if you feel like you're not the smartest person in the room, then that's a place where you could actually get something new and get something exciting and get something that is intellectually stimulating out of the work that you're out of the place that you're at. Excellent. Well, man, I appreciate you making the time for us. I know the Blair community is going to really love this content. I appreciate you, uh, you know, making yourself available to us. And I'm going to encourage, you know, a lot of us uh, in the Blair community to attend Dr. Chung's uh, either in person or join, you know, on the webinar, let's get access to this information. I think we're, we have a mission of bringing Blair to the world. And I think what that means is we need to be some of the best doctors in the world, you know, to uh, hold ourselves to that standard because it, it really does matter for the health of our community. So thanks doc. Appreciate you making the time. I'll make sure that folks can get access um, to the link to the course and all that sort of thing. But if there's any other last words of encouragement or advice, that you'd like to say or shout out any mentors or anything like that. Now's the time. And, and then we'll wrap up. No, I'm all good. Thanks for having me on, John. This was good. I appreciate you giving me some time here. And, you know, I would love to see a lot of Blair doctors out there. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or colleague. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes and check the show notes for links to our hosts, guests, and other relevant information. And head on over to www.blairchiropractic.com to find out more about Blair Upper Cervical Chiropractic or to find a doctor close to you. 
If you're a chiropractor or healthcare provider, you'll want to look at www.blairtechnique.com for information on upcoming events, professional development resources, and some very useful online training modules. You can also find a link to make a charitable donation, which is greatly needed to advance research. Until next time, be well.